The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, if you turn um, to Revelation chapter 1, so Revelation chapter 1, and what I'd like uh, to do is I'd like to read the section that we covered last week, which is 12 to 16, and then we'll read the final paragraph of chapter 1. And so um, John hears this, this uh, voice, like the sound of a trumpet, and verse 12, we read, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So as we uh, have started our exposition of the book of Revelation, uh, I, I sort of have an eagerness to kind of, you know, get into the seven letters and, and then, of course, you know, chapters four and five, that great scene in heaven of, of worship. And then, you know, then you get to the seals and then the uh, uh, trumpets and then the bowls. And so there's just a desire to want to just dive in, especially as we see things uh, unraveling all around us, it's like, you know, let's get to the four horsemen of the apocalypse as soon as possible. Um, and so what I was planning on doing is I was just going to go over these uh, last few verses, 17 through 20, and then jump into the letter to, uh, to Ephesus. But as I spent time just slowly reading through and going over the text, it, it really... It really occurred to me that um, that seventeen through twenty is is unbelievably rich, and there's an application in that text that I think um, we need to see tonight. And so uh, I decided that we won't just quickly pass over this final paragraph, but rather we'll 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 contemplate uh, a little more this scene. So 12 to 16, uh, we have the presentation of Jesus as the glorious uh, Son of Man. And uh, we saw that last week. And let me, just, let me just go through this very quickly. 
this description of Jesus in 12 to 16, there are actually 10 things that stand out. And remember, this isn't photographic art, like we said last week, but these are Old Testament images that come together to give us this picture of Jesus. So he's, he is the priest. He's in the midst of the candle stands, right? This is tabernacle language, and he's present among his churches, right? This is really one of the things that is so unbelievably comforting is that is that the Lord Jesus is in the midst of his churches. But you see this priestly language. He's then, secondly, described one like the Son of Man. This language comes to us from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. And, of course, uh, what was Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels? Son of Man. Son of Man. Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man more than anything else, more than Son of God, more than Christ, more than any other description. Son of Man is the predominant description that Jesus uses of himself, and it, of course, is the preeminent Old Testament messianic title, right? And so you get that in in Daniel 7, you get it in Daniel 10, And then uh, the fourth thing, or the third thing, is this long robe, golden belt. Uh, Again, priestly garments, all right? We went over that last week. And then this brilliantly white hair, which amazingly is characteristic of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. And so the Son of Man actually is is given um, uh, the attribute of divine wisdom and knowledge. That's the significance. In other words, he shares that with the Ancient of Days. Number uh, five, his eyes are a flame of fire. Again, another divine attribute, this penetrating gaze. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He's the divine judge. He sees everything. The one with whom we have to do knows everything. Uh, Number six, feet like burnished bronze, pointed out last week. This is the idea of strength, stability, and purity, all right? And then uh, number seven, the voice like many waters, which again is another divine attribute attributed to the Son of God. The voice of God, which is described in the Old Testament in many places, is the voice of many waters, um, or the, the, the voice of the Lord thunders, right? Uh, Psalm uh, 29. Um, you have the voice of God, which is attributed to the voice of the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man has the divine voice. It's majestic, it's powerful. And then, number eight, he holds the seven stars in his right hand, uh, the idea of power and protection. And I suggested last week, and we'll see this maybe a little more tonight, the idea of Jesus being in the midst of the candle stands and then holding the stars in his right hand may uh, indicate the dual imagery of him being with his church on earth, but also holding in his right hand the church as it's represented in heaven. In other words, he is present and Lord over the church militant and the church triumphant, the earthly church and the heavenly church. Number nine, sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth. This is, of course, the word of God. 
uh, the sharp two, uh, the two edges, uh, the message of judgment, message of salvation, which, by the way, once we get into chapters 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the seven churches, we're going to see that divine word coming forth from Jesus in both judgment and salvation to the seven churches. And then finally, the tenth thing is his appearance was like the sun shining in its full strength. And what this is, is it depicts the essential, effulgent glory of the Son of Man. And so this vision of Jesus as the resurrected, glorified Son of Man is absolutely overwhelming, all right? Now, what's interesting, and we're not going to take time to uh, look at it tonight, but if you take a look at Daniel chapter 8, but more specifically, Daniel chapter 10, verses 8 to 20, you will see that there are parallels in the Daniel 10 passage to this passage, okay? Um, Daniel sees uh, an exalted heavenly being. Daniel falls at his feet as if he's dead, right? Daniel does a face plant, uh, okay? And then uh, stretches forth his right hand, tells him not to be afraid, and then gives him the revelation. Those four components are in Daniel chapter 10, and those four components get mirrored here in Revelation chapter 1, all right? So that brings us to verse 17, and we see this, uh, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Right? So here is this, this glorious vision of the Son of Man. John hears the voice, turns to see the voice, sees the lampstands, and then sees in the midst of the lampstands the glorified, resurrected Son of Man. Uh, by the way, human, divine, priest, king, and he sees Jesus in his glory, and it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, John is so overwhelmed with reverence and awe that the the only response that seemed appropriate was just to pass out at his feet. John, no doubt, sense of being deathly afraid, Um, By the way, remember that this is the apostle who is identified as the one whom Jesus loved. This is the apostle who at the Last Supper is the one who leans back against Jesus' chest and asks him who it was who was betraying him. You are talking about an apostle who lived with the Lord Jesus for a period of three to three and a half years. So to say that John, the apostle, the beloved apostle, was familiar with the Lord Jesus is no exaggeration. And yet, when the beloved apostle sees 
the resurrected, glorified Christ, he falls at his feet as though he were dead, deathly afraid, aware of his own sin, aware of his own finiteness, aware of his own unworthiness. And here is John at Jesus' feet. You you do know that this is the common response of a of a theophany right theophany is 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 the appearance of god and so you have um sort of this common theme of response so for instance so moses is up on sinai in exodus chapter 33 and moses prays a prayer that really is it's wonderful prayer, right? 3318, remember what he prays when he's with God up on Sinai. He says, I pray thee, show me thy glory, okay? To that point, um, by the way, Moses is described as one who knew God face to face, right? That is, he knew God intimately, but Moses understood that there was, there was something more of, of seeing God, knowing God, and he prays, show me your glory. And of course, there's a sense in which Moses doesn't quite understand the fullness of what he's asking. Because God turns around and tells Moses, no man sees my face and lives. The very one who could be described as knowing God face to face is told by that very same God, no man sees my face and lives. In other words, show me your glory. That is, show me the fullness of your person. Let me see you, as it were, face to face. And God says, nobody sees me face to face. If, if I were to show you my unmediated glory right now, Moses, you would die. That simple. And so God tells Moses that he's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock. And then very interestingly, God says, and I will make my, my backwards parts pass before you. Right? By the way, backwards parts. God doesn't have parts, all right? You, you know that. But backwards parts is, is um, the antithesis of God face to face, right? And so, so God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he causes his glory to pass by, but the glory of his backward parts, because no man can see my face and live. You have the very same kind of response in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel actually sees this glorious heavenly being, falls at his feet uh, as, as, as if I immediately just fell asleep, right? Right at his feet. Or you can think of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, very same thing. You have the, a, a theophany, a manifestation of God, and what happens, Ezekiel actually falls at his feet as if he is dead. This is, this is just the, the common response of a human being coming into an encounter with the living God. 
Stop and think about Isaiah chapter 6 where you have, uh, you know, in the year that uh, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? And, and, and here's Isaiah who's in the very throne room of God and, and as he sees God, as he sees the cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty and, and the temple actually fills with smoke because of, again, manifestation of God's presence. It's theophany. And what does Isaiah do? Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He doesn't, uh, Isaiah doesn't say, man, what, a, what a, a, a blessing for me to be here. This is awesome. No, he actually pronounces judgment on himself. Woe is me. What was it about Isaiah in the presence of God? He knew that he was that he was a sinner. He knew that he was unworthy to be there and he actually pronounces judgment upon himself. Think about Simon Peter. So Luke chapter five. Here's Peter. You know, Peter, Peter always is just the guy who Everybody relates to because he just says what's on his mind and there's, there's not a whole lot of pretense with Peter. What you see is what you get. And so Jesus is at the, the shore of Galilee and uh, Peter and his fishing buddies have been fishing all night long. They come in and Jesus is standing on the, the seashore. And uh, again, now, now Jesus here is not like the, the glorified, resurrected, you know, uh, unmediated, uh, glorious son of God here. This is the son of God incarnate on the seashore. And So what'd you guys catch? Peter's like, Nothing. So you work all night, right? Jesus says, go back out and put the, the, the net on the left side. Now, there's no text, there's no variant reading or anything that says this, but I have no doubt that Peter probably muttered under his breath, you've got to be kidding me, right? Who do you think you are? Okay, well, you know, you're the, you're the preacher, so they go back out, and then, of course, they get so, many, so much fish that as they're trying to pull the nets up onto the seashore, the nets start to break. What was that? It was a demonstration of the power of the Son of God. That's what it was. Guess what Peter understood? that the guy that just told me to go out and put the net on the other side of the boat is no ordinary human being. And when Peter comes up on the shore, he falls on his knees. And you know what he says? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He didn't. He didn't come up and go, oh man, this, boy, you talk about entrepreneurial spirit. 
this, this could actually be a really lucrative business. Jesus just tells me which side of the boat to throw the net on. And uh, man, we, we, we kill it day after day. That's not even on Peter's radar at that point. You know what's on Peter's radar? Is that this is the son of God and I'm a sinful man. This is the consistent um, way that human beings respond when they actually encounter the living God. There's nothing casual about this. There's nothing ordinary about it. It is overwhelming and John falls at his feet like he's dead. And then what happens is Jesus takes his his right hand and he touches John. By the way, same thing happens in Daniel 10. Right hand touches him. (laughs) You ever think about how important just touches. You ever think about that? So in, in Mark chapter one, to me, one of the most remarkable things is you've got a leper and Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches him. By the way, in violation of the Mosaic law, he can't touch. And, and, but what's always struck me is that that leper had lived for who knows how long without human touch. Jesus, full of compassion, reaches out his hand and he touches him. Here's here's John just like passed out from fright. And Jesus extends that right hand. It's just an act of tenderness and compassion. And then Jesus says, do not fear. By the way, you could you could legitimately translate it here, uh, stop being afraid. And by the way, I don't know exactly how many times in the Old Testament and the New we have this command, do not be afraid, but let's just say that it is dozens and dozens, right? Right? Have you ever looked it up? Okay. I, I mean, you have this command repeatedly, Old Testament, New Testament, do not be afraid, right? And so here's John. Jesus extends his right hand. There's a, there's a do not fear passage in Luke chapter 1 where uh, Gabriel comes and, and announces to Mary that she's about to give birth to the Son of God, right? And of course, uh, angels are these awesome beings, right? I've, I've told you before, they're not the little fat cherubs that you see on the front of greeting cards. Those wouldn't scare anybody, right? The angels in the Bible scare people right out of their socks, right? And so here's Mary, Gabriel gives this announcement, and what Gabriel says to her is this, Mary, do not be afraid you found favor with the Lord. Here's Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. He extends his right hand and tells John, do not be afraid. 
By the way, that is one of the most tender expressions of divine compassion and favor that you could imagine. We're going to see in the book of Revelation that there are people who are afraid and they get no relief. And here's John, and the command not to fear is now going to be rooted in who Jesus says he is, right? And so, um, this. By, by the way, this is a totally common pattern. You have a command, in this case, don't be afraid, and then you have all kinds of, of uh, reasons why you don't need to be afraid. That's the way God's promises work, by the way, is that there's an imperative, a command, and then there's all kinds of indicative statements, that is, statements of truth that fuel why you don't know, in this case, don't need to be afraid. He doesn't just say, quit being a scaredy cat, right? Quit being a baby. (laughs) I'm going to tell you why, John, you don't need to be afraid. I'm the first and the last. That's a good reason. Right there. I'm the first and the last. By the way, this has already been stated in chapter 1 and verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. All right? And so, first and last. Now, we know explicitly this is Jesus speaking here, right? Okay. So, Roger, put that slide up for me, please. So we saw this a few weeks ago. So that first and last language comes to us from three texts in Isaiah. All right? Isaiah 41.4, I'm the Lord, I'm the first and the last, I am he. 44.6, thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first, I am the last, there's no God beside me. I am he, the first and last, or first, I'm also the last, Isaiah 48.12. And we have God the Father saying it in 1.8 and 21.5 and 6. And we have the Son of God saying it in 1.17 and 22.12 and 13. So, so here's, here's the thing. Jesus says, don't fear, John. And he sticks out his right hand and he says, don't be afraid. Now, Roger, next slide. I saw something absolutely fascinating. All of these first and last passages, in their immediate context, have connection with what Jesus tells John right here. So notice 41.4, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And so that's 41.4. 41.10, right in the immediate context, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with what? My righteous right hand. Do you think it's any accident that Jesus actually extends his right hand and touches John? Right? So, first, last, don't be afraid. Next, uh, 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
So 44.6, look at 44.2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, right? So you see, right? You see this? First, last, don't fear, right? In the same context. The last one actually threw me for a second. 48.12, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Very next verse, 48.13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. What's the right hand in 48.13? It's the hand of omnipotent, power that created everything. So the command not to be afraid is rooted in the truth that Jesus is the first and the last. That is, he is the eternal one. He is the one who is Lord over all of history. And as he says, do not be afraid, what does he do? He extends his righteous right hand by which he created absolutely everything. And the, the, the right hand of omnipotence is the right hand that compassionately reaches out and touches John. You know what that means? That means that that, that when God, through his son, extends that right hand to comfort us and assure us, it is nothing less than his righteous right hand by which he has made all things. This is, this is not some weak God who, who really would like to help you if only he could. This is the God of eternal omnipotence who actually extends that hand. And when he says, don't be afraid, you have no need to be afraid because the right hand of the Most High is actually extended to you, touching you, comforting you and assuring you, telling you, you don't need to be afraid. If the right hand of of omnipotence is upon you, what could possibly touch you that would make you afraid? Now, this um, command, don't be afraid. I mean, first it relates to the vision of Christ, right? Because John's afraid because he's seen the glorified Christ. But I think that this idea also ends up extending throughout the whole book. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid in the midst of suffering. Don't be afraid in the midst of persecution. Don't be afraid when the beast is unleashing all the powers of hell. I'm the first and the last. And the comfort and the assurance that I'm giving to you right now, telling you not to be afraid, is nothing less than the right hand of divine omnipotence. Jesus literally touches John here. But I just want to remind us that 
the Lord Jesus is often right there in the midst of our fear, extending that very same hand to us. Even when you're looking at death, or even when you're looking at suffering, or even when you're looking at uncertainty, it is nothing less than the omnipotent right hand of the Son of God that touches you and says, don't be afraid. Jesus gives another description of himself. I'm the living one. Um, The living one. By the way, it'll be living, dead, living. Okay, that's going to be the pattern here. Right? Living, dead, living. So the living one, it, most of the commentators think this is a, a, an allusion to the idea of the living God, right? So God identifies himself a number of places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 40, etc., as the one who lives forever, okay? Uh, that, that depiction will also be made of an, an angel will say of God, uh, he will swear by the one who lives forever, okay? And so... The idea is is that the first and the last, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, is is life itself. Existence itself. As the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, he is is existence and life in itself. Understand that there's, there's nothing outside of him that lives. There's nothing outside of him that exists. And so here he is. I'm the first and the last. That is the eternal ruler of of, of everything. And I'm the living one. And he says this, I once was dead. In other words, he's the one who was crucified, dead, and buried. You, you, by the way, you, you have to see the, uh, really the, the amazing way that these titles come together. The living one, right? The one who has life in himself, and I was dead. Okay. Is that stunning to you? Right? So, so um, Charles Wesley in... One of our favorite hymns, right? Uh, And can it be? Okay. There's a line in there, and some people don't like the line. I think it's a great line. The immortal dies. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design. That, by the way, is what is being alluded to here is that the living one is the one who I once was dead. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus, in the the fullness of his deity, 
uh, cannot die because it is impossible for God to die. Uh, Hence, it is necessary for the eternal son to become uh, incarnate, to become a human being because that's how Jesus dies. But make no mistake about it, I don't think John would actually have any objection to the immortal dies. And behold, I am living forevermore. Now that, that's different than the first one, right? I'm the one who lives. That's, that's the divine attribute of life and of existence. I died, crucified, died, and was buried. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the resurrection. The resurrection. And so here's, here's the amazing thing. So we just, we just finished up uh, 1 Corinthians not all that long ago. And uh, 1 Corinthians 15 really is just a, an amazing section of Scripture. But here's, here's the thing about Jesus' resurrection, is that Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection unto uh, deathlessness. Okay. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. He died... Never to die again. Death no longer rules over him. Death no longer lords over him. Why? Because the the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the resurrection of an indestructible life. By the way, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 17 or 16 would actually say that Jesus now holds his priesthood permanently by the power of an indestructible life. And so here, what you have is this, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That is, death and hell have absolutely nothing over Jesus. Jesus has conquered, and he's conquered in such a way as death has no more hold over him, period. We've kind of joked about the fact that when Lazarus uh, was raised from the dead... Of course, at some point later, Lazarus is going to turn around and have to die again, right? And um, Jason said that when Lazarus's family gathered around and they were all sad that Lazarus was about to die, Lazarus said something to the effect, don't worry, guys, I've done this before, right? And, uh, but, but Lazarus died again. But Jesus is the one who now is alive forevermore. Never to die. Indestructible life. And then he says, notice this next description. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So by the power of the resurrection, what Jesus Christ does is he strips death and Hades of their power. By the way, death and Hades probably form a figure of speech known as, as a hendiadus. That is, death and Hades is talking about the same thing. That is the realm of the dead. And so here's Jesus, and it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely magnificent to think about what Jesus is saying. So I died, but now I'm alive forevermore, and guess what I now have? I now possess 
the keys to death in Hades. In other words, I now possess absolute authority over death. There's a, there's a, a, a famous um, sermon I can't remember who who preached it. It was a it was a black preacher, and um, and in the sermon, the preacher is acting as if he's one of the demons who's talking to Satan at the resurrection. And um, there's this there's really this 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 wonderful uh, dramatic thing where uh, the preacher, as the, as the voice of the demon, says, he's alive, he's alive, and he's got the keys, and he's got the keys, right? And that's the, that's the picture, is that he goes and he takes the keys. I couldn't help but to uh, think, when uh, Ariel and I were first married, our, our favorite singer was Steve Green. Anybody remember Steve Grieve? Some of the some some of the older people. Yeah, you don't even know Steve Green. I can't believe it. Um, and um, in uh, we got married in '87. He had an album in '85. He holds the keys. Okay. And if you've ever heard Steve Green sing, he holds the keys. You want to just like just jump out of your skin in in praise. Absolutely magnificent. And um, I remember when we moved to Portland, uh, Steve Green actually was the uh, guy who did the music at the um, Conservative Baptist Association meeting, and we heard him sing, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a cappella, which was phenomenal. And he holds the keys. The song, of course, I'm not going to sing it for you because that would be a tragedy. The song goes like this. Death rides blackened clouds across the sky. The Son of Man lays down his life to die. With every pounding blow upon the nail... Thunder rumbles all through hell. And from death's barren womb, the captives cry, Who is there to free us? Should he die? His grave becomes a door. He enters in to face the author of all sin. Defying death and the grave, he takes their keys, and with them every captive frees. And from death's barren womb, the captives cry, Arise, for our redemption draweth nigh. For he holds the keys. He holds the keys. And though we've been held captive, at long last we are free. For he holds the keys. Not only is Jesus no longer subject to death. But death is now completely subject to him. 
And so Tom Schreiner says, those who belong to Jesus don't need to fear for death and Hades and all demonic powers are under the authority of Jesus. Death will not defeat them for Jesus as the living one has defeated death. (laughs) I will tell you that you, you better know that. You better know that. The sting of death has been completely removed by the triumph of Jesus. And that will bring you comfort when you're about to die. Son of Man's Commission, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Jesus says to John, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay? So uh, sometimes when you get to verse 19, there's sort of a oversimplification as if what Jesus says in, in verse 19 is, um, is uh, here's the real simple chronological agenda of the book of Revelation, the things which were 1, 1 to 20, uh, the things which are 2 and 3, and the things which are to come 4 to 22. Okay? That's not actually what Jesus is saying to John. In fact, it needs to be understood what he's saying in in terms of notices very clearly the things which are, the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. What Jesus is doing is he is telling John that the very things that um, the book of Daniel says have been concealed until the latter times are about to be revealed. In other words, the very latter days mentioned in Daniel 2, 28 and 29, and the mystery of those latter days, that is all about to be revealed by the Lord Jesus. And so the vision that Jesus is about to give to John is going to contain elements of the past, it's going to contain elements of the present, it's going to uh, contain elements of the future. There's no just real simple, tidy categories And all of it is a part of, as it were, the latter-day revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, that's by the way, that's why 119 is why Jesus can say these things are about to uh, come to pass. The time is near, right? In in other words, in terms of the, the flow of redemptive history, that which has been a mystery and that which has been concealed is now about ready to be revealed. And so again, I just reiterate that the book of Revelation is not a book uh, of, of, of secret Bible codes only a few people understand. The book of Revelation is an unveiling. And that's what Jesus is doing. The things which were, the things which are, the things which are going to be. He's re- unveiling it. And then you see this, uh, the mystery of the seven stars, which are in my right hand. Again, mystery, if, if we've seen this so many times, where mystery is not something in the Bible that's, um, that's like, um, uh, like a Sherlock Holmes story, right? A mystery is something that's revealed. Okay? 
It has to be revealed in order to be understood, but it is revealed. And so the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, and so they're revealed right here. Notice verse 20. Um, the seven golden lampstands, or the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, it, it would, by, by the way, just be a lot easier if, if the seven stars were as easy to understand as the seven churches. Okay. What are the stars? Says it right there, verse 20. What's that? <laughs> the angels. You go, oh, well, that settles that. That's okay, got that. What is he talking about? Huh? I mean, you, you see that the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, right? And, uh, and you say, what in the Sam Hill is he talking about? So uh, some people point out that the term angelos or angeloi in the plural is, is messenger, which is true, right? Same thing in, in uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, the idea of angel is, is the idea of messenger. And so some people say, well, what, what you have here is that the seven stars are the seven angels, and the seven angels are either uh, pastors or leaders or representatives of the church that may actually end up being the ones that carry the letters back to the seven churches. And um, as far as the word messenger goes, that's all fine and good, but there's a fundamental problem, and that is that John never uses the term angelos or angeloi in any way other than heavenly beings. In other words, he doesn't use that in reference to human beings. Okay. So if that were the case, you would have a, a relatively large inconsistency with John. Uh, other people have said, well, um, read the book of Daniel. So um, by the way, who's the prince of Persia in the book of of Daniel and the prince of Israel. Michael is the prince of Israel. And, and you have this, um, this uh, Daniel chapter 10, this angelic warfare going on, and the angels actually represent uh, entire nations, right? You, you've seen that before, right? And so some people say, well, what's uh, being in view here of the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches, is that Churches have uh, guardian angels, okay? okay. Um, now, don't, don't immediately poo-paw the idea of a guardian angel, all right? Um, you, you have that passage in Matthew 18 where um, Jesus speaks about the children and their, their angels actually behold our Father's face who is in heaven, Right? Um, now, I don't think that you have a like full-blown guardian angel theology, all right? Um, but is it possible that angels are assigned for the protection of churches? And the answer, I, I suppose that that's, that's very possible. Do you have any passages in the New Testament that relate angels to churches? First Corinthians chapter 11. Women are supposed to wear head coverings 
because of the angels. <laughs> now, I, I fully grant that passage actually is, is not like a clarifying passage for us, okay? But still, there's this idea that there are angels who actually are observing what happens. Uh, you see the same thing in Ephesians 3, where the principalities and powers are looking at the church, which is a demonstration of the wisdom of God. Um, stop and think about Elisha when, um, when the Assyrians were uh, laying siege, and what does uh, Elisha pray for uh, Gehazi? Lord, open his eyes, and what does Gehazi see? Gehazi actually sees all of Israel surrounded by the host of heaven, right? So, so are these um, angels that are assigned to churches? I don't, um, I don't know, all right? Uh, could it be the idea of angelic uh, representation of the churches in heaven? Very possible, right? Because when you look at the heavenly beings, you have four living creatures, you have the 24 elders, and then you have myriads of angels. Could be a reference to the reality of the church's heavenly existence, right? Um, Actually, the simplest thing is just in keeping with apocalyptic literature, Angels are the ones that deliver messages. And of course, how is each of the seven letters going to start? To the angel of the church at right. So what, what, what the actual angels are in reference to the churches, I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. Um, is it a nice thought to think that God has assigned angels to, uh, to watch over us, protect us, including the church? And the answer is, yeah, right? They're ministering spirits, right, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, uh, Hebrews 1.14, right? Uh, but, but it's not altogether clear. The fact that angels have a huge role in the book of Revelation is clear. What the relationship is of these angels to the churches is not clear. But what is clear is that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the lampstands represent the churches, the light of the world. And so, here's the the end of this opening vision uh, that brings us into the seven letters to the seven churches. And what we end up having is this absolutely wonderful, wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus actually bringing comfort to John and, and, and reiterating the fact that he's with his people and he's present among his people. So I was thinking about this this morning as, as I was going through the passage, and there's just, a, there's just a couple of things that, by way of application, that just seem obvious to me. The first is this. The best way for the church to be the light of the world is for the church to worship and proclaim the Son of God in his resurrected majestic glory and the fullness of his person and to do it with a sense of reverence and awe. 
We, we don't do the world any good whatsoever. We are not a burning and shining light to the world when we treat God and the gospel lightly. We are, not, we are not serving the world in any way of being a true light when we actually treat the glorious God of heaven tritely. Um, the, the, the church actually is not light when the church tries to mimic the world because the church can never do worldliness as good as the world can. But we try. And when we act as if that's really going to really going to bring them in, you know. So I mean, years ago, I mean, I could just rattle off a gazillion examples. Years ago, a guy that started uh, a church in the Bay Area the same time we started here, um, he sent out uh, something like ten thousand postcards uh, around Easter time to all the people. Um, uh, living uh, within a certain area of, of the church plant. And what was on the postcard? It was him dressed up like the Easter bunny. Do you think a lost person looked at that and said, man, that guy takes God seriously. It's pathetic. It's trite. It's worldly. There's 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 nothing about it that's that's light. You know, you, you you think of these people like the people you guys are ministering to, right? What is it that is going to actually draw them and and change their life? Well, it's not us being able to do, um, you know. Uh, a U2 song during worship. And, you know, um, my sister one time went to a church over in a city that I won't name right now. And um, they sat down and the band got up and played U2. That's U2, not YouTube. All right. You, you know U2? Okay. And they did, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, by the way, they didn't sound nearly as good as Bono, okay? But my sister leaned over to her husband and she says, well, evidently we haven't found what we're looking for either. Why why try to mimic the world as if to, to show people that we're just ordinary people who are really cool like you? No, you know what? The real way to demonstrate the light of the world is to so worship and so proclaim Jesus Christ as the exalted Son of God that he is absolutely incomparable to anything else in this world. That's, that's the privilege of the church. We should, be, we should be so determined to worship God in such a way that when the unbeliever comes in, they have a conviction and not is, not, not, uh, wow, they do music really great. It is to be certainly God is among these people and they take him seriously. So here is this opening chapter of of revelation and it is it is a presentation of Jesus Christ that evokes reverence and awe and that's what we need
That's what we need. Second application is this. The best way the church to be the light of the world is also to live without fear. With absolute confidence that death doesn't win. And death doesn't triumph. Jesus does. Is that that relevant for us right now? Probably more so right now than any time in my lifetime. That the church is a burning and shining witness to the light because we're not afraid. I'm not saying for one single solitary minute that COVID is not serious because it is. But what I am saying is that if you believe in the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, and the one who has the divine omnipotent right hand, and he says to you, don't be afraid, you don't need to be afraid. You just don't. And you do realize there are things worse than dying. But to live with confidence in a sovereign God and a loving Savior who upholds all things by the power of his his word and who loves me and protects me. And I'm not talking about just protects me theoretically out there. I'm talking about um, as, as someone who's actually been super, super close to death. This isn't theoretical for me. Don't be afraid. It's not theoretical. When you think that you're about to die and there is a sense of peace that comes over you that just simply says, Lord, my life is in your hands. You know what that is? That is the right hand of divine omnipotence simply putting his hand upon my soul saying, don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Did a little video, I think, was it last week or week before? Can't remember. Um, you know, if you get COVID and you die, there is a sovereign Lord who's sovereign over that virus. But make sure that you live and you die in a way that pleases him and honors him as trustworthy and reliable. We conquer even though we die. And so knowing Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do for us, is the best way to live without fear. You want to live without fear? Know the one who said, 
I'm the living one. I once was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. Don't be afraid. Way too many Christians are afraid. Live in full confidence of the one who holds the keys. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. And we thank you that in him we have life and in him we have strength. And Father, we pray that even during these days of of confusion and darkness and fear, we pray, Father, that we would live in such a way that we would manifest hearts that that are fully attached to our resurrected, glorious, reigning King, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we give you thanks tonight for the Son of God who loved us, has given himself for us, and now forever lives by the power of an indestructible life. And because he lives, we will live too. In his name we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.